Hi everyone, it's Stu here, your dulcet-toned podcast host. Are you tired of ads interrupting your favourite true crime podcast? British Murders, of course. I mean, who needs a 60-second detour when you're in the midst of an immensely well-told story? The irony of this being an ad isn't lost on me, but I wanted to let you know that you can listen to British Murders completely ad-free by signing up for a Patreon membership. For as little as £3 per month, you'll get early access to ad-free episodes, as well as a heap of other benefits. I've got a fair few bonus episodes you can sink your teeth into, and every Monday I drop a new episode of the British Murders Weekly Journal. If you enjoy exclusive giveaways, my Patreon has those too. Head to patreon.com slash britishmurders and choose either my OBE or KBE slash DBE tier to rid yourself of those pesky adverts. Plus, you'll be helping support your favourite podcast so that I can offer you even more content going forward. I'd say that I'll shut up now, but you've got the rest of the episode to listen to. Back to you, Stu. Welcome to British Murders, a true crime podcast with a focus on British murder cases. My name's Stuart Blues, and I'm excited for you to join me on this journey of morbid discovery. I'm by no means an expert on the subjects of homicide and serial killers, however I have always had a sick fascination with them. Together we will learn about some of the lesser known British murderers, as well as glimpsing occasionally at some of the more notorious ones. The bite-sized presentation of this podcast is intentional, as we look to cover an overview of the respective timelines of each case succinctly. The setting for this episode of British Murders is Aldershot, located in southeast England. It's situated roughly 40 miles southwest of London. Aldershot became the main centre of the British Army within the United Kingdom in 1854. The army needed a large concentration of troops in the south of England, as the United Kingdom's main threat came from across the English Channel. The English Channel, or simply the Channel, as it is referred to here, is a narrow arm of the Atlantic Ocean separating England's southern coast from France's northern coast. It is a major route for passenger and freight traffic, with hundreds of water vessels traversing the Strait of Dover each day. Aldershot is known as the home of the British Army, and there are plenty of signs on your way into the town that says as much. The residents are understandably proud of their town's history and significance to the UK Armed Forces. Towards the north of Aldershot, on the very edge of the border between it and neighbouring town Farnborough, lies Aldershot Garrison. Also known as Aldershot Military Town, the Garrison, which essentially means an area occupied by a collective group of military troops, was established when the UK War Department bought this land area to establish a permanent training camp for the British Army in southern England. Fun fact, my dad was born in Aldershot and grew up in a military family. He himself was in the British Army, as was my mum. That's actually where they met. However, the Blues family's military history stops with my parents, as I have never had any intention of joining myself. Many barracks, by which I mean buildings that house military personnel, are located within Aldershot Garrison, including one relevant to this episode's story. 
Browning Barracks, the British Army's military preparation college for training, was where the subject of this episode, Tony Jasinski, worked as a chef in 1981. I mention the year 1981 here as timestamps will be crucial to make sense of the story. I'll come back to why shortly. Tony was born on April 2nd, 1957 in Leicestershire, located in the English Midlands. It was there where he grew up. He married his first wife Lynn in 1976 and they lived together at Browning Barracks in an area specifically designed to house married couples. This part of the barracks is known simply as the Married Quarters. It's important now that I provide you with background information regarding Tony's character and temperament. According to Lynn, Tony was an extremely violent and abusive partner who put her through hell. He would frequently be in a foul mood and would often take it out on Lynn. Not just verbally, but physically too. When Lynn was pregnant, Tony would slap her, pull at her hair, and even go to the extreme one time of kicking her in the stomach. Remember, Lynn was pregnant when Tony did that. His sadistic tendencies were such that he was always careful not to leave any marks or bruises on Lynn's body when he physically abused her. This was due to Lynn regularly attending antenatal or prenatal classes throughout her pregnancy. Tony didn't want anyone to raise concerns about Lynn's welfare. On another occasion, Tony struck Lynn so hard in the face that she had swelling and bruises for just over a month. She could not have her injuries looked at by a doctor, as Tony threatened to kill her if she went to the hospital or to her local general practitioner, the name we refer to our local doctors by. Lynn's eldest daughter was often forced to watch Tony beat up her mum, which he got a kick out of. It is also worth mentioning that Tony once strangled Lynn unconscious before violently raping her. This is important to note for two reasons. One, Violent sexual assault would become a common thing for Tony throughout his life. And two, at the time of the attack, marital rape, by which I mean a husband having sex with his wife without her consent, was not an offence in England and Wales at the time. The act of rape was an offence, yet there was an exemption for married couples. This exemption was removed in 1991 and marital rape has been a criminal offence ever since. Let's take a step back now to the summer of 1981. This was when the events of this story started. As I mentioned earlier, Tony was living at Browning Barracks with his wife Lynn at this time. You may have noticed that Tony's isn't the only name present in this episode's title. The other name is Marion Crofts. In 1981, Marion Crofts was a 14-year-old schoolgirl who lived with her parents, Anne and Trevor, and her sister, Shirley, in Fleet, located roughly four miles west and slightly north of Browning Barracks. A popular netball player at Courtmore School, Marion was also big into her music. Shirley was also a keen musician and the pair would often play their respective woodwind instruments together. Shirley would play the flute whilst Marion played the clarinet. From this point on, the story gets dark really quickly, just as a forewarning. Saturday, June 6, 1981, was like any other weekend for Marion. Being in a band, it was natural that all practices took place either in an evening through the week or on the weekend, due to school not taking place on Saturdays and Sundays. 
Marion's weekend band practice took place at Wavell School in Farnborough, around five miles away from Marion's home. She was seen riding her bike by local school teacher Alan Roberts, who drove past Marion in his car. At the time, Alan Roberts would have no idea that he would be the last person to see Marion Crofts alive. While cycling along Laffins Road, an isolated country lane surrounded by woodland on either side, Marion was stopped by a stranger. I need to make you aware that Laffins Road is located right next to Browning Barracks and runs adjacent to the Basingstoke Canal. The stranger, an adult male, dragged Marion into the woods and raped her before strangling her to death. He then made a reasonably determined effort to conceal the body under some shrubbery before leaving the scene of the crime. It became apparent that something was wrong when Marion didn't return home that Saturday morning after band practice. Anne and Shirley decided to drive the same route Marion always took on her bike to see if anything had happened along the way. Maybe she was just caught up at band practice. They would only know if they got out and looked for Marion. On the drive, Anne and Shirley stopped suddenly on Laffins Road. They had spotted something white at the side of the road that they felt was worth checking out. Upon closer inspection, this white object was one of Marion's sponsorship forms that she'd taken with her to band practice that morning. Growing increasingly concerned, the mother and daughter team started to search the undergrowth at the side of the road. Some of it looked trampled as if it had recently been stepped on. After some rummaging, they found a black sock and a white plimsoll. A plimsoll or pump is what we Brits call tennis shoes. Trainers or sneakers with a canvas upper and a rubber sole. Marion had been wearing black socks and white plimsolls that morning. It was at that point that Anne called the police. A more thorough search of the area then took place by a police dog unit or a canine unit. Marion's body was soon discovered only a few feet away from where Anne and Shirley had found her sock and plimsoll. Her body had been hidden beneath the undergrowth. Further searches were conducted of the surrounding areas, including the Basingstoke Canal. Police divers recovered Marion's clarinet and bicycle, both of which had been dumped in the canal by her attacker. Given that Laffins Road was in the middle of an army training base, and located next to a canal, a popular location for joggers and fishermen, the amount of foot traffic in the surrounding areas was hefty. At the start of the investigation, known as Operation Vortex, police interviewed a thousand soldiers from Browning Barracks. This number increased to 24,000 after a few months, including members of the public and local residents. Nobody seemed to know anything about the murder of Marion Crofts, the frustrating thing for police was that it was more than likely that they had already spoken to Marion's killer without realising it. Back in the early 80s, DNA analysis was essentially non-existent. The technology used today by forensic scientists simply hadn't been developed yet. Marion's killer could have been easily identified as there were traces of semen found on Marion's jeans and on one of her black socks. With no leads to follow and no suspects in custody, the investigation into Marion's murder was put on hold. The officers who worked the case were moved on to other cases, but they didn't forget Marion. 
Any evidence gathered was placed into storage until further advances in technology allowed them to be re-examined. They were determined that one day they would catch the person responsible for this horrific crime. We can jump back to Tony and what was happening in his life at this point in the timeline. He was discharged from the British Army in 1982 and moved back to his home county of Leicestershire with his wife Lynn. He spent his working days undertaking various jobs such as an insurance salesman and a taxi driver. His marriage to Lynn finally ended in 1984. Their divorce put a stop to the horrific abuse Lynn suffered at the hands of Tony. Tony remarried twice and fathered eight children to three different women, including his now ex-wife Lynn. The pattern of domestic abuse didn't stop with Lynn. Tony was physically abusive to both of his next two wives. The Forensic Science Service, or FSS, was a government-owned company in the UK that provided forensic science services to the police forces and government agencies of England and Wales. The FSS was closed by the UK government in December of 2010 due to significant losses of £2 million per month being cited as the reason behind the decision. The FSS began the first stages of what we now know as DNA profiling in the late 1980s. Back then, the typical thing to do would be to focus on analysing evidence such as a suspect's handwriting or a shoe impression in the ground. Before its closure, DNA profiling accounted for 60-65% to of all the work done by the FSS in their investigations. It wasn't until 1999, 18 long years after Marion's murder, that forensic scientists were able to produce the full DNA profile of her killer. The semen found on Marion's jeans and sock, which remember until this point had been left in storage, was analysed with forensic technology's latest advances. A full DNA profile can be likened to a fingerprint in terms of its uniqueness for some context. The next step was to run the DNA profile through the UK National DNA Database. Created in 1995, this database kept a record of the DNA profile for every single person arrested in the UK. In 1999, the database contained around 1.5 million DNA profiles though none of them matched Marion's killer's DNA profile. The database is only useful if the suspect has previously been charged with committing an offence. Still, none the wiser as to Marion's killer's identity, DS Paul Clements, the officer placed in charge of the search for Marion's killer, contacted Crime Watch in the hope of putting out an episode based on Marion's case. Crime Watch was a British TV show that appealed to the public for information regarding unsolved crime cases. Before its cancellation in 2017, Crime Watch would reenact unsolved crimes using actors before appealing to the public and urging them to get in touch if they had any information that could lead to the case being solved. A modern version of the show is named Crime Watch Live and airs every weekday on BBC One. On February 22, 2000, Crime Watch reconstructed the Marion Crofts case. Both Trevor and Anne Crofts, Marion's parents, appeared in the episode. Anne described how she has never walked on the canal again since Marion's death. Trevor simply blamed himself for what happened. 
He felt that had he driven Marion to band practice that morning or opted not to play cricket, that his daughter would still be alive today. At its peak, Crime Watch pulled in an audience of 14 million people. Even so, nobody came forward with any information that helped police in their search for Marion's killer. The team conducting this search was only given to September 6, 2001 to find the man responsible. This was due to a lack of funding being allocated to the team. As the end date drew closer and closer, the team had all but lost hope until an unexpected call came through to the team on August 24, 2001. This is two weeks before the search was to be called off and shut down for good. The call came from one of the forensic scientists in the lab. They had finally found a match to the DNA profile pulled from the semen found on Marion's jeans and sock. The DNA profile matched that of former British Army military chef Tony Jasinski. Until that point, despite the regular abuse of his spouses, Tony had shockingly never been charged with a criminal offence. That all changed when Tony's current wife, Michelle, called the police after being assaulted by him. He had been arrested by Leicestershire police. The attack on Michelle was brutal. He had struck her in the back of the head with such force that she fell to the floor. She was holding the couple's baby in her arms at the time. Whilst on the floor, Tony proceeded to repeatedly kick Michelle in the ribs. Focused on protecting the baby from the attack, Michelle covered up and took every kick sent her way by her husband. Michelle even pleaded to Tony, asking him to stop, but it wasn't enough to stop him from carrying on. When he eventually stopped kicking Michelle in the ribs, Tony attempted to reassure her by saying, It's okay now. I was just frustrated. It's fine now. It's alright. I'm not going to hurt you again. Michelle used this opportunity to run to the door with her baby and head outside. She went straight to her friend's house who lived a few houses down the road. Michelle didn't know it at the time, but the reason she was finding it so difficult to breathe was that Tony had broken several of her ribs. In the UK, police have the power to take DNA samples without consent from any person who is in detention following an arrest for a recordable offence. These samples will take the form of non-intimate samples. Non-intimate DNA samples can be things such as a sample of hair, other than pubic hair, which includes hair plucked with the root, a sample taken from a nail or from under the nail, a swab taken from any part of a person's body other than a part from which a swab taken would be an intimate sample, saliva, and a skin impression which means any record in any form and produced by any method of the skin pattern and other physical characteristics or features of the whole or any part of a person's foot or any other part of their body. That's quite a weird one to get your head around. It's basically like a sample of your footprint, I believe, or, like a, or an impression that would match uniquely to your skin and your features. By comparison, an intimate DNA sample would be something such as a dental impression or a sample of blood, semen or any other tissue fluid, urine, pubic hair or a swab taken from any part of a person's genitals 
or from any body orifice other than the mouth. As forensic scientists were constantly running Marion's killer's DNA profile through the national database, the match was found when a routine sample of Tony's DNA was taken on the back of his arrest. The chance the DNA profile was from someone else other than Tony was estimated at being less than one in a billion. The story will continue after these quick messages. And now, back to the story. Police checked their original interview records from 1981. It was revealed that Tony was one of the many people questioned concerning Marion's death. He was asked the following questions. Where were you between 9am and 11am on the murder day? Tony replied, At work, Browning Barracks. When were you last in the area of Laffins Road and the Basingstoke Canal? Tony said, Never. Have you any information to offer re the murder? No. He wasn't charged or even regarded as a person of interest at the time. He was let go. Jumping forward again to 2001, DS Paul Clements had organised for a couple of officers to drive up to Leicestershire on August 25th, the day after hearing about the DNA profile match with Tony Jasinski. The DNA match clearly puts Tony in the area where Marion was murdered at the time she was murdered, which drastically goes against his interview question answers from 1981. Tony wasn't aware at this point that he was now being treated as the main suspect in the murder of Marion Crofts 20 years earlier. Police were biding their time, and key decisions were being made in the background as to what their approach was going to be. Their dilemma was that if they charge him with Marion's murder too early, they may not have enough evidence to warrant keeping him in custody. In the UK, the police can hold you for up to 24 hours before they have to charge you with a crime. If you aren't charged at that point, you must be released. In extreme cases, such as when an individual is suspected of committing a serious crime, such as a murder, police can apply to hold you for up to 36 or 96 hours. The maximum time you can be held without charge is 14 days. This is only applicable if you are being arrested under the Terrorism Act of 2000. In Tony's case, they would only have four days, 96 hours, to gather enough evidence to formally charge him with the murder of Marion Crofts. The two options were setting up a surveillance unit and keeping tabs on Tony whilst they attempted to gather more evidence, or arrest him and hope that they could charge him before the 96-hour time limit passed. Tony was due to appear in court on September 3rd, 2001 for the assault on his wife, Michelle. Remember, the team in charge of the search were to have their funding cut completely on September 6th, 2001. Police decided that Tony posed too much risk to the public to allow him to walk free. They decided to arrest him when he was due to appear in court. Tony, completely oblivious to the fact that he was even being looked into for Marion's death, walked into Hinckley Magistrates Court in Leicestershire on the morning of September 3rd. DC John Fraser of Hampshire Constabulary was waiting for his arrival. He identified himself to Tony and explained that he was under arrest on suspicions of the murder of 14-year-old Marion Crofts on June 6, 1981. Bewildered at this, in his mind, outrageous claim from the police, Tony was handcuffed at 10.17am 
and taken to a meeting room at the court which had been pre-prepared by officers. Tony exclaimed, This is crazy, whilst he was cautioned for the offence. Before the police can question someone about their suspected involvement in an offence, they must formally caution the suspect after being arrested or after handing themselves in. The wording is as follows. You do not have to say anything, but it may harm your defence if you do not mention when questioned something that you later rely on in court. Anything you do say may be given in evidence. Regardless of the location, you must be cautioned immediately by the police after being arrested to allow for further questioning. Being cautioned by UK police is comparable to police in the United States reading you your Miranda rights. Tony was then placed in a police car and driven the roughly two and a half hour journey down to Hampshire. He was told that he would not be allowed to speak to anyone in the vehicle for the duration of the drive. The officers in charge of transporting Tony decided to purposely drive through Aldershot Garrison, the army part of the town. Their intention was to refresh Tony's memory as best they could to aid their main suspect's forthcoming questioning. Tony was interviewed at Aldershot Police Station by Doug Utting and Adrian Lees. Typically, police interviews are recorded both by way of an audio recording as well as video. Police cannot force you to be recorded, and if you don't wish to be taped, you need to state this before the interview. I only mention this as Tony refused to be videotaped during his interview, though he had no issue with an audio recording taking place. Tony was in complete denial and was adamant that he hadn't killed Marion Crofts. When asked outright if he had murdered Marion Crofts, Tony calmly replied, No. When asked to recall his whereabouts and the chain of events he went through on the day of Marion's murder, Tony stated, that would be impossible for me to remember, absolutely impossible. When confronted with the fact that semen was found on Marion's jeans and sock, the DNA profile of which matched Tony's DNA profile, he said, that's impossible, unless it was actually planted there. Police shut down that logic by asking why anyone would do that. They reminded Tony that forensics and DNA analysis as we know it was not available back in 1981. Tony had no answer to that. This frustrating back and forth between the interviewing officer and Tony went on for days. It wasn't until the very last day of the interviews that Tony unwittingly provided police with exactly what they needed. He suddenly went against everything he had said before, that it would be impossible to remember anything from so long ago, to knowing every single thing he did on the day of Marion's murder in great detail. When asked again what he can remember about June 6, 1981, Tony stated, I can remember I went in work early with the warrant officer, because I can see him as plain as daylight coming in. And I can remember there was an all-day breakfast going on. It took me 25 minutes to get home. I played with the children, and then I went to bed. It's important to note that Tony only had one child at that point, so his use of the plural term children further showcased that he was lying and making this story up. There was then an exchange between the interviewing officers and Tony that is so ridiculous it's almost beyond comprehension. 
I wanted to play you an audio clip from one of the interviews with Tony, but it's no longer available online, frustratingly. For some context, Tony was being questioned again as to how his semen ended up on Marion Croft's jeans. I'll play the part of the interviewing officer as well as Tony. Your semen on her jeans. Give me an explanation. I am not on her jeans. My semen could be there, but I certainly aren't. She was raped. Yes. She was 14. And I think it's atrocious. No prior sexual history. 14. A child. She's got semen on her. Your semen. Explain that, please. It could be quite possible she's picked it up somewhere. Where? How do I know? Because it comes out of your penis. That's how you should know. You're trying to pin this on anybody who'll take the rap by the sounds of it. It's no good getting violent with me. You're pulling the violent face at me. There's no need for that. So how does your semen get from the cookhouse down the end of Laffin's Road? You tell me. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. You were there. You raped her. No. That is wrong. I was working and you will find out that I was working. You'll find out I could not physically have been there. He was so adamant that he had been framed that Tony told his wife Michelle how easy it would be for someone to get a condom with some sperm in it and place it at a crime scene to pin it on him. If the ridiculousness of that claim on its own wasn't enough, it was revealed that the sperm found on Marion's clothing still had the tails attached, indicating it was very fresh. At this point, the officers knew full well that Tony had raped and killed Marion, they just wanted him to admit it so that her family could be spared the ordeal of sitting through an unnecessary trial. Tony was formally charged with the rape and murder of Marion Crofts on September 6, 2001. How bizarre that the day the team in charge of the search was due to be shut down and defunded ended up being the same day that Tony Jasinski was charged. Tony was remanded in custody at Winchester Prison in Hampshire to await his trial. The prosecution team now had to prepare for the trial and started by looking into Tony's background and history. It seemed unlikely that Marion's murder was a one-off isolated incident. The team of 30 was split in two. One half focused on gathering the information required for the trial and the other half looked into Tony's background. The prosecution team visited Browning Barracks as part of their preparation. They wanted to get a sense of how long it would really take someone to walk from the barracks to Laffins Lane and the Basingstoke Canal. Starting in the sergeant's mess, where military personnel socialise and eat, it was revealed that there would only have been one chef on duty during weekends back in 1981. Tony had stated that he was in the sergeant's mess at the time of Marion's murder. Walking towards the canal from the barracks, the team came across a fence that led onto the canal towpath, which is the name given to a trail on the bank of a river or canal. The fence would have had minimal security at the time, meaning that military personnel could have come and gone as they pleased without anybody noticing. It took 22 minutes to walk from the barracks to the Basingstoke Canal. By the time the trial started at Winchester Crown Court, the prosecution team had prepped over 200 witnesses and had 200 exhibits to show the jury. 
the DNA evidence was also even stronger now. The prosecution team had three full DNA profiles produced from different places on Marion's body and clothes. A reminder that the odds of the DNA not belonging to Tony Jasinski was a billion to one. To remain impartial, the jury wasn't told about Tony's history of domestic violence. The prosecution took three and a half weeks to fully build their case against Tony. The jury even visited the scene of the murder as part of the trial. A key witness called was the cook on duty in the sergeant's mess on June 6, 1981. He stated that there were only two chefs who worked in the sergeant's mess and neither of them was Tony Jasinski. The defence's case lasted a mere six hours. No witnesses were called. On May 10, 2002, the jury came to their verdict after only three hours. For count one, the rape of Marion Crofts, the jury found Tony Jasinski guilty. For this, Tony was handed a 10-year prison sentence. For count two, the murder of Marion Crofts, the jury found Tony Jasinski guilty. For this, Tony was sentenced to life imprisonment. The multiple counts of domestic violence against all three of his wives were left on file rather than investigated further. This decision was made to ensure that the women in question weren't subjected to further anguish with more trials. Cotmore School, the high school Marion attended in Fleet, has an award named the Marion Crofts Trophy for Netball in Marion's memory. Each year, the school awards the trophy to one of the girls who plays netball for the school and shows a very positive attitude whilst also being very enthusiastic. Typically, the winner is a well-respected member of the netball team whom the other girls would have voted for anyway had they been given the opportunity. That was the story of British murderer Tony Jasinski. For more on British murders, please feel free to check me out on social media. The links for Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok and YouTube are all in the show notes. The show has merch now, which is available via Teespring. The link to the shop is in the show notes. I personally recommend the premium hoodie as it's ridiculously soft, comfy. It doesn't shrink in the wash. I know this firsthand. You can support the show every month by becoming a Patreon member, where you'll get access to ad-free episodes, my scripts, raw and unedited audio, and more. Memberships start from as little as £1 a month. Or you can support the show on a one-off basis by visiting Buy Me A Coffee. The links for both of those are in the episode description. Any funds received will go towards researching the show and will help with the hosting costs involved. You can email me at britishmurderspodcast at gmail.com I'd love to hear about some case suggestions or if you just want to get in touch, you can do so there or via social media. Please continue to leave me reviews on iTunes. It would be greatly appreciated. It massively increases the show's exposure and ultimately helps the show grow. Before I sign off, let me tell you about another fantastic podcast run by my mate Lorraine Purden. It's called Once Upon a Nightmare and it covers both true crime cases as well as horror movies. If you're obsessed with the horrors of the world, both real and fictional, then check out Once Upon a Nightmare and Lorraine will take you on a deep dive down the scariest rabbit hole you've ever seen. I love the show, Lorraine's a lovely lady, so please show her podcast some love. 
I'll play the trailer after reminding you that I've been Stuart Blues. This has been British Murders. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, cheerio. Hello, this is Lorraine, your host from Once Upon a Nightmare. Every Tuesday, I like to delve into the horrors of the world, be it fiction or real. I've had a healthy and what some will call a strange obsession with true crime and horror movies for well over 30 years now. So if those two topics pique your interest, then please go check out Once Upon a Nightmare podcast. It is available on multiple platforms. And don't forget to rate, review and subscribe. Thank you.